You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 49, Israel's destiny and coming salvation. You'll remember last week we began to introduce the, the end of Jacob as he summoned for Joseph and Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to come and to receive special blessing. Um, and it was at that time that Jacob was able to uh, reflect and share some of his own life experiences. Our summary sentence from last week highlighted the fact that for believers, we have um, different lifetime experiences that mature us in our faith. Um, as God shepherds us and delivers us from different trials and difficulties, meaning that in our old age, we have the greatest opportunity to praise him. That in our culture, your prime years are viewed as your younger years, whereas in Christianity, your prime years can be your latter years. That um, as you've come through life and you've uh, been shepherded and guided and delivered through a lifetime of experiences, we see Jacob worshiping God at the end of his life. You say, well, where do you, where do you get this idea that his best days were his last days? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we saw last week, Hebrews chapter 11, all the things that we've talked about with Jacob that could have made its way into the hall of faith. As, as the author of Hebrews is relating a different Old Testament figure after different Old Testament figure and talking about their claim to faith, it's Genesis chapter 48 that the author of Hebrews chooses to highlight for Jacob. Right? It's not Jacob and the experience with the ladder where angels are descending and ascending from earth to heaven and, and he gets the promises of God. That's not what the author of Hebrews talks about. It's not him fleeing his land to escape Esau. It's not him uh, working hard for the, the hand of Rachel. It's not him uh, bringing his family back to the promised land. None of those things are highlighted in Hebrews, right? It's, it's the fact that he, he blessed the sons of Joseph. And, and acknowledged who God was in his, uh, at the end of his life. And that's what the author of Hebrews says, hey, this is, this is his claim to faith. This is, this, is jo- this is Jacob at his best, and it's on his deathbed. Um, and so we talked about last week just the idea that we, um, as we continue to move through our life, have greater and greater opportunities to praise God as he continues to shepherd us through our own difficulties. <clears throat> we talked about um, a mature faith last week being uh, one that hopes in the future, we talked about Jacob uh, desiring that his body not be buried in Egypt, but to be buried in Canaan. We talked about a mature faith being grounded in the past and how um, Jacob highlighted God's faithfulness to him and to his ancestors. We talked about a mature faith being conscious of the present, uh, that Jacob was very aware of how God was working, even if it was against his own expectations, um, that Jacob was very aware that God was at work in special ways around him. <coughs> Which brings us to chapter 49 today. And I want to draw our attention to this chapter as we continue to see Jacob saying his goodbyes. He now expands upon his blessing that has already gone to Joseph and his sons and now gathers all of his sons uh, before him. It says in verse 1 Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you. In days to come. So, we're going to be taking a look at the tribes of Israel today and some of the things that God says specifically about these tribes. We're going to limit our discussion to the sons of Jacob that really really gain um, the focal discussion in this chapter. So, we're not going to hit every one of these, um, mainly because some of the things that are prophesied here 
without going really in depth into the history of Israel um, to show some of that fulfillment, um, we really can't uh, capture what's going on in this chapter. And, and that discussion is probably better served for a Sunday school type format or a, um, a college type class. And so we're going to stay away from some of these um, and really try to hit what I think are the, the main points of this chapter um, this morning. So from a summary sentence standpoint, for both our adults and our kids, for our adults, as we fight to ensure that our life is defined by faith rather than by sin, we must find hope and encouragement in the ultimate salvation that is coming, which will put an end to our fighting as we enjoy eternal peace. So for those that are visiting with us today, we always do a summary sentence at the beginning of the sermon. This is what we're going to be unpacking for the rest of our time together. Um, And it's usually kind of lengthy because we're trying to summarize the next 45 minutes or so. So as we fight to ensure that our life is defined by faith rather than by sin, we must find hope and encouragement in the ultimate salvation that is coming, which will put an end to our fighting as we enjoy eternal peace. For our kids, we should fight sin and express trust in God while we wait for Jesus to bring peace. We're going to see some of Jacob's sons are defined by their sinful choices, Others overcome their sinful choices to uh, experience redemption later in life. Um, But ultimately, the chapter points us towards this hope of the future. Um, That even mankind, when mankind is doing his best and experiencing the best possible environment here on this earth, it still encourages us to look to something far greater than the best that this world can offer. All right, so we fight sin. We want to be defined by by faith rather than by sin. Uh, But ultimately, to do that, we have to keep our um, hope and our encouragement focused on the ultimate salvation that is to come. Some introductory notes as we get into this chapter. Um, The passage is real similar to some of Noah's statements to his sons back in Genesis chapter 9. As they're coming out of the flood situation, he begins to prophesy over his sons. And so there's some parallels there as far as how that kind of plays out. Um, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, if you wanted to go back and um, reference that passage at some point this week. Um, while Jacob's words don't bring exclusively good news, there's some bad news tied into this. Overall, the message that Jacob brings is considered a blessing to the sons. In Genesis chapter 49, verse uh, 28, kind of summarizing his uh, words here. It says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Um, So this is definitely a uh, blessing type passage upon the sons of Jacob. Uh, Two individuals that are really focal points in this chapter are both Judah and Joseph. Um, As you see Jacob kind of passing on the, the birthright to his sons, it kind of gets split. So we've seen Abraham pass to Isaac, Isaac pass to Jacob. When it comes to Jacob passing it along, it's, it's kind of split as far as how it plays itself out. Joseph gets the, the material inheritance. He's the one that gets the double portion that goes down to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He kind of inherits the inheritance portion of the birthright. Judah assumes the leadership component of it. Remember when we talked about Jacob and Esau and him selling the birthright and the blessing that Esau forfeited the right to to lead the family and to take that spiritual lead for the family? 
that seemingly gets passed more to Judah as Judah becomes the tribe that uh, eventually the kings will flow from. And so the, the birthright's kind of split in that aspect of how we understand it. Joseph receiving the material possessions part of it, Judah uh, embracing the leadership component of it. I think as we look at this passage and we see the different destinies of Jacob's children, what it does remind us is that not only does God have general promises of good that apply to all of his people in general, he has very specific individual plans for us as well. Think about that. We talk about God's promises, Romans 8, 28. God promises good for his children. We can talk about the ultimate good of Jesus coming back. And so we can see general promises that apply to all believers. But I think this passage reminds us that God has very specific plans for every single person in this room that God has promises of good that are tied to you individually in unique and special ways that are different than how he's promised me um, and how those promises will play themselves out. So we see different destinies and different things that God is going to bring upon the, the children of Jacob. And so while God promises good, God promises blessing to his children, that plays itself out differently in different ways for different people. And we've, we've hit on that point um, several different times over the past couple of months that, that God's blessing can be different in the lives of different individuals. We all inherit the same spiritual blessings of Ephesians chapter one, but God plays those out differently in the lives of his children. Um, and that's certainly the case here with um, the, the sons of Jacob. Uh, it's helpful to remember too that as he's prophesying and blessing his sons, that prophecy in scripture is given really to sustain people through barren and dismal experiences, to remind them that God has a good future plan. That's, that's the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy helps sustain us during times of barrenness, during times of, um, of uh, uh, discouragement, during times of the mundane. The prophecies of the Old Testament sustained those people as they looked forward to the Messiah coming. Now in the New Testament, we have many prophecies that continue that we await fulfillment. Those two ought to sustain us during our times of barrenness, during our times of, of uh, the mundane activities of life. Prophecies are meant to sustain us as we look towards their fulfillment. We definitely see tribal distinctions in this chapter with the different tribes of Israel being mentioned. This is important as we think in terms of the Christmas season and we think about Jesus coming. We know there's prophecy specifically tied to the Messiah that uh, Jesus fulfills. And we should also understand the fact that no one else can fulfill those moving forward. Old Testament's heavy on genealogies, right? The Old Testament is heavy on the tribal distinctions. We know the Messiah is supposed to come from Judah. We know the Messiah has to be a descendant from Abraham. The Messiah has to be a descendant of David. These are prophecies about the coming Messiah. What you may not understand is that the genealogies um, were destroyed about the time of AD 70 when the temple fell and, and, and Jerusalem was sacked. And, and many of those records were were forever lost. Now we have Jesus's records contained for us in scripture, but for someone to realistically show up on the scene and claim to be the Messiah for the Jewish people, he can't rightfully claim the things that Jesus can because those things don't exist anymore, right? And I think that's part of God's sovereignty. He says, you know what? Now that the Messiah is here, we don't need anybody else trying to pervert this. We're gonna do away with these other things, giving no other person the right to claim uh, the same position that Jesus claims. And so we see tribal distinctions here. They're setting up Jesus to be the Messiah that fulfills all the prophecies regarding these tribal distinctions. Um, what's really, I think, awesome about this chapter too, and maybe it's specifically awesome because I deal with the opposite so often, Jacob doesn't defend or excuse 
his children in this chapter, right? He doesn't try to excuse their sin. He doesn't try to minimize their sin, right? He calls it out and rebukes it on his deathbed. It's not, well, I love you guys. Um, you guys are misunderstood. Um, he, he says, no, like you guys are, your, your blessing's different, right? Like he says, because of your choices, because of your decisions, uh, I, I want to distance myself from you in, in some aspects. Uh, when I meet with, and this may surprise you, when I meet with parents um, at the middle school, and we're meeting about disciplinary issues, it's not uncommon to have parents sit there and defend their child's actions and want to excuse away their child's actions. And, and I love Jacob here because Jacob doesn't do that, right? Jacob identifies their sin. He calls out their sin. He rebukes their sin. He doesn't try to, he doesn't try to uh, minimize it. He doesn't try to throw a veil over it. He doesn't try to cloak it. He says, this is what it is. Some of you guys have made some poor choices and decisions, and we're going to call it out, and we're going to address it. Um, I think that's worth mentioning. Um, last, last thing, we're not going to mention some of the, um, the individual smaller, uh, sons here as far as what's said about them, but I did want to draw attention just because of the season that we're in. Um, it really just kind of jumped out to me and some of the commentators, um, really emphasize this in Genesis 49, 14, talking about Issachar. It says, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. If you trace some of the history of Issachar, you'll find that, that a love for some of the things of the world enslaved them in ways that they weren't meant to be enslaved in order to work for it, in order to earn it and to gain it. And I think it provides a, a cautionary warning to us that we be very guarded and careful about enslaving ourselves to our work in order to gain the things of this world that, that entice us. Um, the covetousness, the, the lustfulness for the things of this world can easily ensnare us, can easily enslave us, especially as men who lead our families to feel the need to work harder and to work more and to never stop working in order to gain things material things, and, and that's something that, that defines Issachar moving forward, and they enslave themselves uh, to forced labor in order to gain some of those things. Um, so I thought it worth mentioning um, at this time. Those are some introductory notes. Uh, our summary sentence again, fighting to ensure that our life is defined by faith rather than by sin. We find hope and encouragement in a coming salvation. Let's jump right into our notes um, this morning. Number one, Sinful actions may bring about permanent consequences. Sinful actions may bring about permanent consequences. For our kids, when we sin, the consequences can last a long time. As Jacob calls his sons before him, it says in verse 2, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. The tragedy, I think, of this chapter, um, he begins with Reuben. It says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to, their, to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You'll remember, um, number one here, Reuben's lust forfeited his influence. Reuben's lust forfeited his influence. You'll remember when we talked about this, uh, this incident back in Genesis, we mentioned the fact that, that Jacob doesn't really address it at all. Uh, that Jacob in the text doesn't rebuke it, doesn't address it, doesn't go after Reuben, doesn't try to correct his behavior. 
that it's just told to us in Genesis that, that Reuben does this with, um, with Jacob's concubine or Jacob's wife, um, that he, he seizes her, takes her, and we said that it was an act of defiance against his dad, basically trying to seize leadership of the family now that, that Leah has passed away. Um, and here, Jacob waits till the very end to address it and certainly makes it clear that he's not okay with what Reuben chose to do. Um, he calls him unstable as water, um, describing his emotions, his emotions caused him to become harmful. You think about water, um, water is certainly unstable in that it doesn't uh, necessarily have boundaries, especially in liquid form. They have to have set up boundaries to, to hold water. Water can certainly be used for, for great purposes, right? Like we need it to be sustained. Our crops need it to be sustained. Uh, water can be certainly used for harmful purposes as well in the form of flooding. Um, it can certainly cause death. Um, and that seems to be the picture here that, that Jacob thinks about when he thinks about Reuben. There's, there's good things about Reuben, there's bad things about Reuben. And, and when he thinks back upon Reuben's life, this incident stands at the forefront. This incident, he unstable in his emotions, in his lustful desires, he makes a, a, a poor choice. He, he acts upon those emotions and, and Jacob draws attention to it here. Reuben forfeits much for a passing pleasure. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think about Esau. Esau, who forfeits his birthright for a, a pot of stew, right? Um, Reuben forfeiting really what would have belonged to him, the birthright, potentially both the um, material inheritance that goes to Joseph and the spiritual leadership that would have gone, uh, that went, ends up going to Judah that could have gone to him. He forfeits both of those things for an evening with a woman, right? So Esau forfeits for a pot of stew. Reuben forfeits for an evening with a woman, and, and, and he can't gain it back. Much like Esau, who could not gain it back with tears, Reuben can do nothing here to regain that position. A man who should be leading his family, if you trace the history of Reuben, his tribe never produces a prophet, a judge, or a king. Reuben should have been far more than he actually became. The only time we ever see anyone from the tribe of Reuben leading again is in the spiritual rebellion of Dathan and Abiram. Does anybody know that story from number 16? What, what takes place there? These guys try to lead a revolt against Moses, right? Like they, they try to revolt against his leadership. So these guys come from the tribe of Reuben. Um, they attack the leadership that Moses has, attacks the anointing that God has upon Moses' life. And, and the earth opens up and swallows these guys up. And they were trying to lead people into their way of thinking. So Reuben, who's supposed to be the leader of the family, um, makes a poor choice, forfeits that right, and then God in his blessing and punishment here towards the sons of Jacob prohibits him really from ever having a meaningful leadership position for the rest of his tribe's history. No prophet, no king, no judge. Um, even from some of these other lesser sons and lesser tribes that, that have some of their own problems, we could, we could, we could list some, some profitable people from their tribes. I don't have anybody to give you from Reuben. Um, Reuben's actions had far-reaching consequences, not just for himself, but from his descendants as well, as many of them seem to follow in his pattern. In fact, you could also uh, look at Judges chapter 5, when Barak and Deborah are going up against... Uh, the, the general Caesarea, and they start calling for help from some of the other tribes, Reuben's tribe says, we're not coming. We're not coming. When you, when you need us, don't expect us to show up. Like, we're not coming. 
Um, and, and they highlight the fact that Reuben sat this one out, basically. Didn't show up when they were needed. Didn't lead and help when they were called upon. And that becomes kind of the defining moment for Reuben. That becomes the defining things that we remember about Reuben. Him forfeiting his influence for momentary pleasure. Jacob rebukes him here on his deathbed. A man who should have been far more becomes far less. Number two, Simeon's anger forfeits his presence. Jacob moves on and begins to address Simeon and Levi. And he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined in their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Can you remember, uh, anybody remember what incident he's kind of tagging them with um, as far as their consequences moving forward? What are, what are they guilty of? He puts them together as though, I mean, they're all brothers, right? But he, he really highlights them as being brothers because they're very much alike in their actions. What are they guilty of that we talked about? Yeah, the revenge on Shechem. You'll remember that their, their sister Dinah is, uh, is mistreated by the, the man from Shechem, and they're not happy with it. He's kind of stolen her purity, and, and they react as you would expect uh, the boys to do, and they're, they're not okay with their sister being abused this way. And so their response, you'll remember, is to pervert the sign of the covenant. They take circumcision. They ask all the men of Shechem to be circumcised because the Shechemites are like, hey, let us marry her. We, uh, the guy's like, hey, I love her. Um, let me marry her. And, and they're like, no, 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 you're not marrying her unless everybody gets circumcised, right? And so they all get circumcised, which means they have to sit one out because they're, they're recovering from that. And Simeon and Levi lead a, a vengeful killing spree upon that city and, and wipe all the men out and take all their women back to be a part of, um, of, of Jacob's family. And, and it's a complete massacre that, that Jacob says, you've made us a stench in the land, right? We talked about as Christians, we should give off um, uh, a type of aura with people around us that we draw people to salvation, we draw people to Christ, right? We talked about the fact that, hey, they can't go tell anybody else to be circumcised without everybody kind of looking at them funny and saying, not a chance. Like, we, we've heard what that means and what you do to people that, that get circumcised. And it was supposed to be a sign of commitment, and, and it becomes a, a fearful thing. Right, And so it hurt their testimony, and, and Jacob's addressing that here now. Jacob's not okay with the fact that these two boys, these two sons of his, engaged in this type of activity. Simeon's rejected, his anger, his violence is rejected um, here. You'll note, uh, it says in the uh, last part of verse 6, For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness... They hamstrung oxen. It wasn't just that they were violent and vengeful. It's that they found pleasure in slaughtering the Shechemites. God says, as a result, I'm going to scatter you and I'm going to divide you. I'm going to scatter you and I'm going to divide you. Basically saying, you guys aren't going to be able to team up together again and do something like that. Right? Your, your destiny is going to be division. And when we talk about... Um, the land, and I heard some of the groups talking about why Levi may not be included when we think about the 12 tribes of Israel because Levi doesn't actually get land, right? Like they're scattered amongst the cities because they end up being the priests of Israel. 
while Simeon gets land, technically he gets land that belongs to Judah. Like it's not even really technically uh, his land. In Joshua chapter 19, verse 9, it says, The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. It's like, Judah's like, hey, we got, we, got, we got way more than we can even fill up, right? Like, God's been so good to us. God's given us so much land. We can't even fill it up. Why don't you guys, why don't you guys live on the backside of our property? So Simeon gets land, but it's not even their own land. Um, and it's part of the consequence for the choice that he made. Um, and, it, and its consequences play itself out down the road uh, with his descendants. Not only that, Simeon becomes the smallest tribe in Israel, Numbers 26, when they're doing the census, Simeon is the smallest of the tribes. And then if you try to trace Simeon's history throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that the tribe of Simeon basically disappears after the conquest of the promised land. Um, not, not anything really else is said about the tribe of Simeon. When we think about what does this mean for us, it needs to be a reminder to us that sinful choices we make can have lasting consequences. That while there's forgiveness available, while there's um, the chance to, to, to move beyond poor choices in the past, sometimes the consequences are far-reaching and they can't, be, they can't be wiped away. They can't just be done away with. Reuben and Simeon bear long-term consequences um, for their actions, and it ought to stand as a reminder to us and to our children as we teach them that sinful actions can bring about permanent consequences. All right, number two. Faithful works can redefine a sinful past. Faithful works can redefine a sinful past. All right, so when we think about Reuben and Simeon, these are their two highlights, that that Reuben took his dad's wife and Simeon reacted vengefully towards the Shechemites. that's, That's what we think of when we think about those two individuals. But what's encouraging is that faithful works can redefine a sinful past, that God can still use those that have made poor choices and decisions and can redeem those individuals. For our kids, just because we messed up in the past, it doesn't mean we can't do the right thing the next time. Just because we've messed up in the past, it doesn't mean we can't do the right thing next time. You notice that I split Simeon and Levi, even though they're grouped together in Jacob's discussion. The reason I split them is because I think their destinies end up playing out differently, right? What do we think about when we think about Levi and his descendants? Priest, right? Like, that's certainly not a bad thing, right? They, they don't get their own land, but Scripture says their portion is the Lord, right? That they get to be the priests, the interceders for the nation of Israel. And you think, like, well, well why, why Levi and not Simeon? Like, why does Levi, why do we think more, uh, more favorably about Levi, than we do about Simeon. Because um, I do, I think more favorable, I think about Levi, the Levites and the priests and, and the, the, the strong men that come from, from that tribe, uh, Moses, Aaron, Eli, Ezra, John the Baptist. These are, some great, these are some great men. These are some great individuals that did great things to move Israel towards God. Um, why, why Levi? Why does that end up being his destiny and why is it different than Simeon? He participates with Simeon in the the revenge of Shechem, but he has a different reputation today. Anybody know why? Or anybody know what factors may have contributed to that? Yep. 
Yep, Exodus chapter 32. Um, so if you want to flip over there real quick, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 gives us the account of the golden calf. You'll remember Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive instruction from the Lord, to receive God's commandments. Children of Israel get bored. They implore uh, Aaron to, to make them a god. Moses comes down and is righteously angry towards that. And in verse 26, or 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron and let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. <clears throat> I want you to just pause and think about that a second. That's a totally different reaction to something very similar as what happened at Shechem, right? I mean, think about Shechem. You've got, you've got a, a, a man who takes his sister and, and steals her purity from her, right? And so they react and say, that's not okay. Um, and probably if a group of, of, of us were sitting around uh, eating breakfast, a group of men, we might would say, that, that's what I would have done, right? Like I would have been very angry, but I would have, I would have gotten forceful with the man that did something to, to, to my daughter or to my, uh, to my sister, but it's rebuked, right? Like it's not considered an okay thing. Like it's a stench in the land. This is awful. And, and Jacob says it's not okay. But here Moses says, good job, guys. Like that's the way to take care of business. You, you fast forward a little bit more um, to Numbers 25. This is, remember we've talked before about Balaam trying to curse Israel and God won't let him curse Israel. And so... The king enlists uh, some of the beautiful women of his town to go try to uh, get Israel to be impure with their gods. And Numbers chapter 25, verse 12, also verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. All right, so, so what, did, what did he do to, to kind of redeem the situation? If you back up to verse six. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. What does God say? Awesome. I appreciate the zeal. I appreciate the passion. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two? Well, you'll remember when we talked about Shechem, what did we say was supposed to happen? What did the law say was supposed to happen? The law made provision for that type of activity. If you had someone who stole someone's purity, they had a responsibility to marry that person. 
they had a responsibility to marry that person, right? And that's what he came and offered to do. And the children of Israel said, nope. Now, they didn't have the law yet, right? But this is part of how God's character was revealed and how he wanted the children of Israel to function. And, and that was the provision that was made. That's what could have happened, and it would have resulted in no deaths for the Shechemites. Well, what's the provision for the false god worship? Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Now, you don't have to understand why God functions the way that he does here, but what's clear is that he wanted one thing to happen with the Shechemites, and he's okay with this other thing happening, that it's part of his revealed will, that whoever's trying to lead children of Israel away from him, that his jealousy ought to be embraced by individuals within the camp, and they ought to seize the opportunity to purge the evil. And the Levites are honored for that. That's what makes them different, different from Simeon, and that's what makes it different from how they handle the Shechemite situation. Remember, it, it was pleasurable to go kill the Shechemites. I don't think this was pleasurable for them, right? This was out of jealousy um, and out of passion and zeal for God and worship towards God, and God honors that, and their righteous anger redefines them moving forward. They don't receive land, but they do receive the Lord as a portion, Deuteronomy 10, 9. We talked about some of the great lead, uh, leaders um, that come out of that. Righteous anger redefined Levi, number one. Number two, sacrificial leadership redefined Judah. Sacrificial leadership redefined Judah. All right, let's put ourselves in Judah's shoes here, right? Like Reuben, what did he do? Well, he seized his dad's wife. Not okay. Simeon and Levi, what did they do? They killed a whole bunch of people because they were, they were jealous over Dinah and what had happened to her. And Jacob says, not okay. Now it's Judah's turn, and Judah's got to be thinking, okay, um, gosh, it was my idea to sell Joseph. That's, that's, Dad can't be happy about that, right? Um, I ended up thinking that my, um, my daughter-in-law was somebody that she wasn't, and I took her. Um, that's, that's, that's not okay. Um, Judah's got to be expecting kind of a similar response, right? But instead, what, is, what does Jacob say? He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his file to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And there's, no, there's no real bad news for Judah here. He probably expects a similar rebuke, but he doesn't get it. And I think the reason for that is that while he's been sinful, we've already highlighted that he's demonstrated true change in his heart. Right? Remember when Tamar's identity became known? He was very quick to confess his wrongdoing with her. 
right? We've already highlighted uh, his character when he offers himself in place of Benjamin. When Joseph's keeping his identity veiled, Judah thinks that Benjamin's life is on the line. He offers himself. It's the first example of substitution in Scripture, right? It points to a greater substitution when Christ comes. But Judah, acting like a little Christ here, says, take me instead of Benjamin. And I think that's why Jacob is able to look past previous mistakes and allow his current faith to redefine him. Right? He says, Judah, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one that kings come from. The the scepter's not going to depart from your house. While he sinfully demonstrated true, true change, as a lion, he will experience leadership and victory. We see some fulfillment in that in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalms 18, where David talks about the necks of his enemies being given to him. David, a descendant of Judah. Jacob goes on to say that the brothers, uh, their descendants would bow to his descendants. The kings would come from him. And I think with every good king that we can look at that comes from Judah, it points obviously to a greater king. And there's this anticipation here when he's talking about this king and talking about the kings and, and then talking about how the scepter won't depart. And then he talks about this, this time period, this time period of great blessing, which leads us into our third point. Mankind at his best reminds us of greater things still to come. Mankind at his best reminds us of greater things still to come. For our kids, Jesus will do better things than any human has ever done. There's this anticipation that's building um, uh, of a king that can come and do greater things than the previous king. And we see some of this prosperity here. And um, I think what's unfortunate about the ESV translation here, and I don't normally say anything um, negative about the ESV translation. Um, But in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall shall be the obedience of all the peoples. If you have like the ESV app, you may be able to see the little notation there. Um, that takes you to some notes in your Bible. To read from that, it says, by a slight revocalization, a slight uh, emendation yields um, until he comes to whom it belongs or technically until Shiloh comes or until he comes to Shiloh. If you take some of that original language rendering there, what's really being talked about in verse 10, it's attributing that there is someone to come greater than anything Judas produced. That when we think about the great kings, they are pointing to a greater king. And there's this, this, this name, this, this title, um, it's, it's vague and commentators aren't really clear on what it even means. Most of the good ones kind of landed on it, conveying some type of attitude of peace or, or environment of peace, this idea of Shiloh, okay? Um, what I want you to see in your notes is that we wait for this Shiloh of Judah, this, this, this greater king, this one who will bring peace in ways that we've never experienced. Now, you think about the history of Israel, obviously there's some times of turmoil where they're in captivity, but you think about David and him conquering his enemies, and you think about the great prosperity of Solomon. Israel experienced some really great times with some really great kings. And what Jacob says, there's one to come that the scepter won't depart from Judah until the one who it really belongs to shows up on the scene. 
The conquest of Judah will find even greater expansion than any of the great kings of Judah have, have found up to this point. Um, look what it says. Um, says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We can fast forward a little bit and better understand what that means in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed... Sayer also his enemies shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Talking about this great conquest of many peoples. You go to um, Romans chapter 14, verse 11, though, and we start to see Jesus as the fulfillment of this. And Romans chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus, a descendant of Judah, the great king that we wait for, it says... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Philippians 2 describes the same time frame or the same thing that all the great kings of of, uh, Israel that descended from Judah, none of them had every knee, every every knee bowing before them, right? Their, their, Their conquest was limited. And this Shiloh, this one to come and claim the scepter points to a greater expansion, but also points to greater heights of prosperity, um, look at uh, verse 11. Let me explain to you what's going on here. It says that basically there's coming a time when this Shiloh seizes the scepter where people will tie their donkeys to the vineyards and will wash their garments in wine. And, and, and what's being portrayed there is that wine, which was a valuable commodity, will be so common, like the wealth and the prosperity of the time will be so common that you're not concerned about tying your donkey up to the vineyards and him eating all the good grapes. That, that wine is so prevalent in your house, sometimes we wash our clothes with it like we have so much of it. And I, and I was trying to think of like, what, what, what does that sound like in our language? And the best I could come up with is, is if you were to go to somebody's house and see them blowing their nose with dollar bills, you're just like, Wow, like you guys must have a lot of money. Like you just use dollar bills instead of tissue. Like we all use tissues. Like now nah, we got so much of this stuff laying around, we just blow our nose on it. Like, like that's the picture here is that the prosperity is so great that, that something that's valuable all of a sudden starts getting used for common purposes. That he leads us into that type of age, that type of prosperity. And, and, and Jacob is talking about this and looking forward to it and longing for it. And what I found really interesting is that um, I never really understood why the John two, um, the John two miracle with the wine, was as important as it is until I was studying this and kind of connecting the two. And the commentators were connecting the fact that Jesus shows up; it's his first miracle, right? Like he's at the wedding in Canaan, and he starts to turn water into wine. And the understanding, if you're hoping and you're clinging to every text and every promise in the Old Testament that you can, and all of a sudden you start seeing this man who can take something as common as water and turn it into wine, you would have immediately connected, hey, there's something different about this. What, what tribe did you say this guy's from? He's from Judah. And, and, and he has the ability to turn something common into something valuable. And it would have immediately connected them. And so the hope continues to build and and the anticipation grows as Jesus shows up and starts his ministry and really attaches himself to this passage, I think. Number two, we wait for Yeshua. 
This is the first mention of salvation in the book of Genesis. And it falls right in between Dan and Gad. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And I'll be honest, commentators debate as to whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Some people want to say Dan is crafty and materialistic, or not materialistic, militaristic, in that he's, he's great at uh, deceiving his enemies and conquering. Others want to say, no, Dan's, Dan's a pretty bad dude because one of the reasons he's probably left out of the genealogy in uh, Revelation is that he helps introduce idolatry to Israel. And he functions much like the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And it's probably in that context, as Jacob is describing Dan like a serpent, that he all of a sudden just kind of stops and says in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for the salvation that's coming from the serpent. The serpent has, has, been, has been conquering and hurting and harming since Genesis chapter 3, and I'm waiting for the ultimate salvation that's to come. And he, he, he cries out, and he says, I'm waiting. And the, and the language here is, I'm waiting for Yeshua. I'm waiting for the one who is to save. And that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. And the, the name for Jesus comes from the Greek, the Greek spelling and the Greek understanding of that name. But essentially, we have the first reference to salvation here in the book of Genesis, in, the book, in, in Scripture, if we're starting in the book of Genesis. And Jacob reminds us of what is to come. All the victories and conquests still point to a greater salvation to come. So our application for us today is that we must keep our hope on the one who is still to come. As we fight sin and as we try to overcome past choices and and continue to express faith and continue to persevere, that only happens by us keeping our hope on the one who is still to come. And I want to close briefly by showing a quick video that kind of ties in some of the things that we talked about. And specifically, it talks about the wine part um, that we looked at today, the prosperity coming. If you're not familiar with these guys, the Bible Project, they've got a lot of great videos for those that may be wanting to teach things at home uh, with their kids or just strictly watching for your own personal teaching. Um, but this is a, a video that kind of connects the, the, anticip- the anticipation of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. You know, everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, 
God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve, and this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise, and it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world is going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snakebite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. 
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.